Welcome, folks, to the First Things Editor's Desk podcast, where I talk to various authors in the magazine, and this is Rusty Reno, um, the editor of First Things, hence the wonderful and creative title of this podcast, The Editor's Desk. And I'd like to welcome Daryl Paul, professor of political science at Williams College, to the podcast to talk about his contribution to our Roe Symposium under the title Abortion in Class. Welcome, Daryl. Thank you, Rusty. I'm really glad to be here, and thanks for the invitation. Your your piece discusses really the the the, the political economy, maybe is the way we describe the political economy economy of our abortion debates in America, and explain to the listeners the class disparities, which are quite striking. The class disparities in attitudes towards abortion. So in terms of attitudes, the surveys, you can find these kinds of surveys all over the place. I think the data that I use in the piece is uh, Gallup data and maybe some Pew data as well. It shows pretty clearly that if we define class by educational attainment, which is at least the easiest way to define it because we have lots of data for that, the higher you go up the education ladder, the more uh, pro-abortion or maybe we would better say pro-abortion rights, one is, and the lower down the education scale, it's quite the opposite. So in terms of attitudes, at least, the most uh, pro-life class in America is the working class, and the least pro-life class is the um, most highly educated professional class. Right, but as is the case in so many other areas of the transformations of our society since the 1960s, the people higher up on the social ladder are in fact less likely to procure abortions than people that are lower on the ladder. I think as an Amy Wax, her line is that the progressive elite talk the talk of the 60s, but they walk the walk of the 50s. So how does this play out in the question of the use or recourse to abortion? No, it's a, it's an exactly uh, right statement that that you gave from Amy Wax, and and lots of people have have noticed this, and and I think you yourself and some of your writings have noticed this. Um, so when we look at the actual abortion rates um, by level of education, um, as as I said, it's exactly the opposite. Um, the poor uh, are the ones who are getting far more abortions than the rich. Um, those with the lowest levels of education are getting far more. Uh, abortions than those with the highest levels of education. And so we do see this this kind of um, incongruity, if you will, between attitudes and practices. Uh, elites are very, very much uh, pro-abortion rights, and yet they're really getting very, very few of them. And uh, it's, it's quite the opposite with the working class. Um, the way I at least look at it or kind of interpret it is that I think the working class has aspirations that they're unable to meet. Um, I don't think that, except for an amazingly small percentage of elites, I think most elites do not want to get abortions. I mean, there are some of the kind of, kind of crazy uh, Hollywood types who say these kinds of things. Oh, I wish I had had one. Uh, but for the most part, <laughs> I think they don't want them. But I think the working class is the same. The working class doesn't want uh, this recourse um, to abortion. They don't want to be having them as much as they do. And yet, um, they have them. And, and I think this is not wholly, of course, but uh, significantly for material 
reasons and material challenges, as well as kind of the culture around uh, uh, material comfort, shall we say, and status uh, that people feel from the wider culture, much of that as which is heavily influenced by elites and elite discourse around abortion. So you would say that that uh, the lower you are on the social scale, the more you find abortion morally at least troublesome, if not repugnant, but we have a legal system where you are led into temptation, so to speak, um, because you know we're complicated. Human beings are all very, very complicated. If there's no guardrails, you can easily slide off the road. But the people in the higher up on the social cl- uh, ladder exercise more discipline in the use of contraceptives and and the number of sexual partners, if I'm not mistaken. And so they don't slide off the road and crash off the cliff. Yeah, I think that notion of of guardrails is important, and we can think of guardrails as being um, both economic as as well as cultural. So just kind of grabbing a couple of the statistics that I talk about in the piece, um, only 21% of respondents with a high school diploma or less favor an abortion regime of, in the words of the survey, are legal under any circumstances, essentially abortion on demand, uh, whereas 43% of college graduates do. And so that's the kind of the legal side. There's the moral side as well. Only 33% of Americans with a high school diploma or less believe abortion to be, quote, morally acceptable. 72% of people with an advanced degree, right, a master's degree of some kind or a PhD, feel that abortion is uh, morally acceptable. So I think there's a clear aspiration here uh, that is unable to be met. And and, and some of this may be cultural, um, that there aren't kind of cultural supports uh, for alternatives to abortion. But there's also material ones as well. Um, abortions are procured primarily, or maybe I shouldn't say primarily, but when one looks at the comparative abortion rates by class standing, by income, by marital status, et cetera, et cetera, the the people who are getting the most uh, are single women or especially cohabiting women, right? So women who have a sexual partner, regular sexual partner, but are not married to him. And uh, they are on the young side. They're not teenagers, but they're women in their 20s. Um, so these are people who are facing both cultural and economic situations in which I think, as you said it, Rusty, is a good way to think of it. There aren't these guardrails. There aren't the guardrails of marriage and a secure marriage partner, and there are not guardrails in terms of financial security as well. Yeah, you in your piece, you, you note that women in poverty are six times more likely than women at twice the poverty level to procure an abortion. I mean, that is a, that's a striking disparity. It is. It's, it's really troubling, I think. And, and it's something that I wish, right, more people on the left would be interested in. And that clearly from the data, we have a working class, and even we might use the language of an underclass, right? People who don't even have very secure connections to the job market, who are getting in an inordinate number of the abortions in this country. And the overall abortion rate, comparatively speaking, compared to European countries, is on the high side. It's come down a lot, um, thankfully, uh, since uh, its peaks kind of in the 1980s, but it's still relatively high. They're getting far more abortions than at least the public opinion data suggests that they want. 
And so therefore, there are all kinds of things that our society could, and I certainly argue in the piece, should do um, to help these women realize what they themselves want. And that's something obviously is not sufficient, I think, from a, a conservative or pro-life position, but it's something that at least I would hope um, that uh, a pro-life and a, a pro-abortion rights position could agree on. So why do elites embrace what I would call abortion extremism? So the argument that I float in the First Things piece is kind of about symbolic politics. I guess I'll say it that way. And I mentioned the story of Paxton Smith. And just in case people don't recall this story from earlier this year, earlier in 2021, Paxton Smith um, is, I think she's currently a freshman at the University of Texas at Austin. But in the spring, she was a high school senior and she was selected to give uh, a speech. I don't recall if it's a, a um a valedictorian speech, something on that order. And she, rather than following the script that was approved by the school, wound up giving a three-minute speech on essentially abortion rights, kind of reflecting on the Texas bill that has since become law. And this just caught the media by fire. And so many people in the media and in politics were so excited about this. And And what I note in the speech is that someone like Paxton Smith, a teenager, white, middle class, maybe upper middle class, I don't know exactly uh, what her class background is, but looking at the school district, it's at the very least a middle class district, Um, college bound. These are about the least likely women in America to get abortions. And yet she became, for that time in the spring of 2021, the symbol of the need for abortion rights. And I think the reason is, and I say this in the piece, is that this allows elites to put themselves at the center of the story, where they are the main character, their fears, their trials and tribulations, if you will, become the centerpiece and what we all wind up talking about. And so, so I think that plays an important role here in, in why, uh, why elites have the opinions that they do when it comes to abortion. It's clear from the sections of the speech that you quote that the elite claim is that women cannot attain professional success. They can't compete with men at the highest levels of society unless they have the backstop of abortion. And that that does seem to be the basic argument here is that the only way that women can be free to realize their greatest potential is if they have access to abortion. And I I think that's that's precisely the argument. And and we have it in pristine, condensed form in Paxton Smith's own speech. She says, and I'm just quoting from her speech, which I quote in the first time's piece, she says, I'm terrified that if my contraceptives fail, I am terrified that if I am raped, then my hopes and aspirations and dreams and efforts for my future will no longer matter. And this is why she was hailed um, as kind of a heroine um, in the spring, because that little three-minute speech summed up the abortion rights discourse that we have in America, one that's highly class-inflected, highly ordered towards material, financial, um, professional success. 
Right. It assumes that everybody has a career when, in fact, most people just have jobs. Indeed. Most people do just have jobs. And some people even who have careers come to think of their careers <laughs> as jobs. <laughs> when I read the piece, what chilled me really to my core was a comparison of Paxton Smith's um, argument or latent argument, which as you, you, as you, you, you say, and I think it's quite right, is the essential claim of the pro-abortion um, faction in our society. It's resemblance to John C. Calhoun's argument from the necessity of slavery. Um, as you point out, the founders, the consensus among the founders was that slavery was, was an unfortunate evil that would eventually um, uh, fall out of existence, and so, hence the prohibition against the importation of further slaves and so on and so forth. But by the time you get to the 1830s, you have Southerners that are arguing not that slavery is an unfortunate, necessary evil, temporary evil, but is in fact a permanent necessity, um, a permanent necessity for the full fulfillment of the white man's potential and capacity. <laughs> it really is a very it's a it's a it's a chilling chilling resemblance so comparing abortion to slavery is something that is somewhat inflammatory i perfectly well recognize that one might even suggest that i did it on purpose and there's certainly people um on the pro abortion rights side who take great offense at this analogy but I drew out this analogy, I think, in a way that is not typical because it does exactly highlight this argument that becomes rather prominent in the South long after the founding, right? As you said, Rusty, the, the slave-owning founders like uh, Washington, uh, Jefferson, et cetera, those we are so familiar with, at least had this moral attitude towards slavery, that it was uh, a necessary evil. And, and Washington released his slaves upon his death. Uh, Jefferson kind of said he was going to and then didn't, um, but kind of wanted to. Um, but this is a very different... He was too deeply in debt to be able to... <laughs> his estate couldn't afford to manumit his slaves. Exactly. By the time we get, really get to the 1830s, there's a real sea change in, in thought. And the argument is by people like John C. Calhoun, who's not the inventor of this argument. He's really just kind of the, the most famous name attached to it. And that's why I use... Um, some of his words in the piece, he really does say very clearly that slavery is good. And the reason it's good is that it essentially resolves the conflict between labor and capital, which is, of course, becoming a real conflict, right? This Marx is beginning to write here uh, in this period, in the 1840s, 1850s. Um, and so he says it's good for that reason. Uh, so therefore, the South doesn't have the kinds of class conflicts that one sees in northern cities or certainly in Europe. What's well, kind of a benevolent hegemony of the white man over the black slave that, that uh, everybody prospers and by, according to Calhoun's way of thinking. Right. I think Calhoun is less, um, he, he, he doesn't quite make the argument that it's good for the slaves. I mean, he kind of says that it is. He doesn't really spin that out as an argument. Others do, though, right? Others actually in this time period say that it's actually good for the slaves. Um, Calhoun himself is saying that it's good for society. And as you noted, Rusty, he also says very clearly, very blatantly, it's good for white people. And why is it good for white people? Because he says servile labor, right? 
not work in the fields, that's okay, but Calhoun says servile labor, right? waiting on a wealthy plantation owner, right? waiting at his table, um, suckling his children, those kinds of things. Those are just not fit jobs for whites. And so therefore we need somebody to do them, right? We can't have a society without them. So we have to find somebody else to do that work. And that's the African slave or the African-American. Um, and, and this is his frank argument. Some people have to suffer. Some people's freedom must be eradicated for others, other people's freedom um, to flourish. And that's just quite simply Calhoun's attitude and view. I, when I was reading that, I was reminded of David Hackett Fisher's wonderful book, Albion Seed. And he, he, he articulates different senses of freedom that function in, in, um, the Amer- in American society before the revolution. And at the, in Virginia, he identifies the ideal of what he calls hegemonic liberty, which is the power to rule and not to be ruled. Um, and this is functions to say that those at the top of, the, of society enjoy the most freedom because they can command others, but they themselves are not commanded. And I can see the logic of Calhoun's argument. His argument is that better that a few men be truly free than that we should live in a society where human the perfection of human freedom is not realized. And that really seems to be the Paxton Smith argument, which is that, of course, well, we deceive ourselves in this era, but if we're not, if we're undeceived, of course, only a very few women get to have their hopes and dreams and efforts realized in a, you know, vibrant and uh, successful professional career. And the argument here is that it, it, it is sufficient that they would succeed, that that's a sufficient justification for not the subordination, but the death of others. Um, you, you say it's a provocative analogy, but I say slaveholders didn't execute their slaves, um, whereas abortion does actually kill a human, a human being. Um, and as you say, the 60 million since uh, Roe. Um, like I said, it's a, I'd never, I mean, once I read it, it made sense. And I'd had intimations, but I'd never heard it said so clearly that that analogy, which is very powerful and very damning of our society. I mean, I'm glad you found it troubling because it's, it, it is troubling or it should be troubling to everyone. I mean, that is the Paxton Smith argument that is, and I don't want to just ascribe it to her. I mean, she's not the one who invented it. She was the one who was taught it um, by others who came before her. But it is so much focused on, I think you're exactly right to phrase it this way, the freedom, the freedom of young women in America today, that they cannot be free to achieve whatever they might want to achieve wherever their talents might take them. And especially on this focus on things like talent and merits, again, we're talking about a class discourse. This is relatively few people in the ultimate scheme of things. Exactly. This is a relatively few number of people. I don't want to make it sound like it's a tiny number, but of course, right, the number of slaveholders in the South was certainly a minority of people. That Then again, it was also a large, a large minority. 
Um, and so the kind of professional managerial class in America is certainly a minority, but it's a large one. And it obviously has outsized influence in terms of our culture. And so the argument that this freedom to accomplish, this freedom to achieve requires, at least in some cases, the death of one's own child. Um, I think it needs to be stated that bald-facedly, that clearly, um, because so much of the discourse around abortion in this country goes forward because we don't talk about the humanity of the unborn child. And in fact, we must not talk about it if we are to engage in the practices that are supported by the abortion rights side. You conclude by suggesting or stating that that the proper way to understand Paxton Smith's, um, the things that Paxton Smith hopes for, or what she fears may be taken from her, that, that it's not abortion, but rather the stability of marriage and family life that is far more likely to support her in her ambitions, even if she has a child, as compared to abortion. So you kind of pivot and say that strong families are the best foundation for a pro-life culture. Spell that out. So I think it's pretty clear from the social science literature that at least at the individual level, the best wealth building institution that exists in American society, probably in any society, I can't speak for others, is marriage. Marriage builds wealth. Um, marriage also is the institution that human beings have invented to provide the best context for the raising of children. I don't mean to say that marriage looks the same everywhere. It doesn't. It has variations. But this attachment of a biological mother and a biological father to their biological children is this um, kind of pan-cultural institution that Americans over the last, well, I suppose, 20 years, maybe more, have begun to forget and to cease to practice. And so we have large numbers. I'm not sure exactly what the latest figures are. Certainly it's over 40%. It might be even over 50% now of children in America are born to non-married parents. And especially in the United States, um, this number is not often the way one sees it, say, in a country like Sweden, in which we have um, cohabiting parents who act as if they're married and they have kinds of legal protections for each spouse and kind of cultural understandings that just don't exist in America. The, the truly single mother uh, uh, rate, single women raising children rate is quite high in the United States compared to any place, certainly in Europe. And so if the pro-life movement is to be successful, and I certainly know that you and I both hope that it will be, um, there's a legal battle to be fought. And we see that in the courts and so much of uh, what we talk about has a legal inflection, and I don't want to take away from that in any way. But there's also a, a, a social, economic, political um, part of this formula that we need to think about as well. How to create a situation in which people don't want 
to get abortions. And the way to do that, I think, and certainly I argue in the piece, is to rebuild marriage, not just a culture of marriage, that's good, that's important, but also material infrastructure and a legal infrastructure for marriage. One of my friends, academic friends, um, he had, when I met him, he had been married for more than 20 years. He was only 40 years old. And, um, you know, it was a kind of classic small town story about knocking up uh, somebody else in high school and the shotgun marriage and all that sort of thing. And I think it vindicates your intuition, which is that, um, you know, he and his wife went on to have more children than um, the context of marriage, uh, which lasted <laughs> um, surprisingly. But nonetheless, um, she wound up getting a Ph.D., and because there's a give and take in the context of marriage that allows the unexpected pregnancy actually to be something that can be um, can be endured. And moreover, one can find fulfillment in one's life. One's hopes and dreams, so forth, are, not, are, are can be realized and not stymied. Um, so I, I, I find your, your argument quite persuasive that a strong family policy is really absolutely essential, uh, concomitant to a strong pro-life stance. Uh, and it's not going to be just uh, moral cheerleading for the institution of marriage, but it also needs to be really nuts and bolts policies to, um, to provide the financial support necessary and financial incentives certainly necessary to encourage marriage. In the National Institutes of Health data that I draw from in the piece, it shows that cohabiting women have an abortion rate about six times higher than the abortion rate of married women. Um, that's a pretty amazing statistic. Uh, that's about the same gap as we see between poor women and women who, that is women who are living under the poverty line uh, and women who have 200% or more um, family income over the poverty line. It's not that women who have a partner are equal to marriage. They don't think of themselves as married. Or even if they do, I think it's pretty clear that their partner doesn't, doesn't think that the couple is married and that there are commitments to the other partner and commitments to the children that may and often do come from that partnership. And so to transition people from cohabitation to marriage is one of the things I recommend. And this may sound heretical to people who are committed to individual liberty, but we have north of the border in Canada, legal regimes in some of the provinces. Of course, Canada is much like the United States, the federal system. So it's the provinces uh, that control marriage law, just like it's the states here in the U.S. that control marriage law. That in some of the provinces, if you cohabit for a certain period of time, your cohabitation is turned into marriage. You're married now. Um, it's old-fashioned common law marriage. Exactly, which the United States doesn't have anymore. Um, and so to, to do that in a way that is ordered towards exactly the protection of the weaker spouse, which you know nine out of 10 times, especially in an unmarried couple, the weaker spouse is the woman. And especially for the protection of their future children, the children that do come, right? Lots of children in America are born to cohabitating couples. And those are the couples that have abortion rates far, far higher 
than anyone else, even far higher than 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 single uh, women who had who are not cohabiting. Well, Daryl, you've given us a program. The pro-life cause does not end with overturning Roe. In fact, you would suggest that's just the beginning, and that we need to promote a strong family policy if we were to have any kind of lasting gains for the pro-life cause. So thank you for giving us that agenda. And thanks for being on the podcast. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks again, Rusty. All right.